Happy to be here together tonight in the second week of a three-week sanctuary series entitled Bible Study Methods. I was telling a few people tonight, last week is a rich lesson, the, the lesson that's last, that we taught. It's a rich lesson. Next week's lesson is a very rich lesson. This week's lesson is a lot of information. It's a lot of how-tos. And those sometimes can get a little bit dry. So I, I was telling a few people, I hope you brought your ketchup because I don't want it to be dry. But whenever you keep your mind focused on what it is that we are actually talking about, and if you can keep your focus on that, I think it will keep it from being dry. So before we get into tonight's lesson, I am going to tell you that the reason we're here is because of the Word. And if you seem to be getting just a little bit um, glazed over, I'm going to be watching and you better have your head up because all of a sudden you might get a piece of candy right in your lap. And it'll keep you awake, right? Now, if you want a piece of candy, go ahead and fall asleep. Lay out on the side. Now, okay, I'll do my best. Now, my husband laughs at me because I don't have a very good aim. All right? So I'll, I may throw it over here and it may wind up over there. But either way, we'll, we'll just keep all the attention going. Now, this came from Sister Tammy. I just want you to know. She's the one. She, I was telling her, I said, it's a dry lesson tonight. She said, well, here's a reason to keep them awake. A bunch of reasons. And she gave me a whole handful and told me to do it. So I'm just obeying my pastor's wife. So if there's a problem, you can take it up with her. <laughs> so let's get into, um, let's get into your handout. The first thing we're going to do is review last week. So last week, we learned that being a person of the word can be divided into three parts, right? Last week was relationship. This week is the workman. We're going to talk about that. And next week will be strengthened because that is the result of what we must do once we have developed our relationship with the word and we have learned how to be a workman in the word. Naturally, what is going to happen is we are going to be strengthened and we're going to strengthen other people as well. So, what is the Word? We based it on John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about the fact that God is a voice. The Greek word is logos, which means what? Concept with? Thank you. I heard somebody sound wrapped around it. That's what logos means. That's what God is, because John 1 and 1 said the Word was God. Logos was God. If you've ever wondered what God looks like, what God is, God is a, an idea with sound wrapped around it. God is a voice. Okay? Wrap your mind around that. It's kind of hard. Hebrews 4.12 what is the word? The word of God is logos. It's a concept with sound wrapped around it, and it is quick. And the English definition is not the definition. We're going for the Greek definition of quick, which means alive. The biblical definition of the word quick means to live, to breathe, to be alive. So this word lives, and that makes it totally different from any other book. Amen? The fact that the word is alive is the reason we can actually have a relationship with it. I enjoy reading. I love reading. I've read all my life. I was the kid who read the back of the cereal box 
Every morning, the same thing until the cereal box was empty. I just wanted to read, and that was what was in front of me. So I love reading, but I've never developed a relationship with a cereal box. And I've never developed a relationship with any of the other books that I have read. I enjoy reading John Grisham novels. I think John, I used to work in a law firm. So that intrigues me. It's about the legal field. I have never developed a relationship with a John Grisham book. Ever. You can't because those books are not alive. This is the only book that is alive. And the reason why is because it was dictated. It was it was spoken out of the mouth of God Almighty, and his voice does not die out. The sound from his voice does not die out. You can gain, you cannot gain a relationship with the word through anybody else. It can't come through the minister or the teacher or the fellow prayer warrior or your spouse or your family or anybody else. That's what you've got to understand. And and today, whenever I was going back over my notes for this lesson, that, that right there arrested me and I had to stop for a while. Because my husband and I love to talk about things. We love to discuss the word. We love to discuss concepts. We love to discuss the Bible. We love to discuss thoughts. We all do it driving down the road. And I thought about how much many times I will depend on him. I want to know what you think about this. And he will do the same for me. And today it hit me all over again this morning. My relationship with the word can't even come through him. If you're sitting by your spouse or a good friend or a close family member right now, as great as they are and as holy as they are and as dedicated and consecrated as they are, your relationship with the word cannot come through them. It can't happen. As wonderful as this church is and as wonderful as our pastor is, your relationship with the word cannot come through him. It has to come from you to the word. It's a very personal thing. It is a soul, single, personal action, which must originate from you. You must activate that. It cannot come from without. It can only come from within. And then after we talked about that, we went into seven different methods we can employ in order to cultivate and deepen our relationship with the word. These are listed in the top half of your Front page on your handout, seven ways to develop relationship. Number one, we said read the word. Number two, we said listen to the word. Number three, pray the word. Number four, obey the word. And we talked about obedience always precedes revelation. Number five, we said meditate on the word. And biblical meditation means filling your mind with the voice of God, and letting it come out your mouth. Eastern meditation says empty your mind. Biblical meditation says fill it. So did any of you decide on a verse this week that you're going to start memorizing? Did anybody do that? Well, then you have another week. I see one. Yes. Praise the Lord. You have, you have another week. You can begin fresh and new in the morning. Start filling your mind. Memorize that. Don't just wait until you have a a print in front of your face that you can read in order to fill your mind. Put it in your heart and let your heart fill your mind. Okay, so many more of you are going to do that this coming week. Number six, 
ask questions from the word. And remember that we discussed the difference between questions and the spirit of questioning. And that difference is this. The spirit of questioning seeks to divide or to prove. And questions seek revelation. So you cannot be a good scholar, good student of the Bible unless you ask questions. But those questions have to come from an attitude of seeking revelation rather than seeking proof or seeking to divide. Does that make sense? All right. And number seven, write the word. And believe it or not, I got more um, feedback on this than any other thing. I, I was sitting by Sister Caton, and I don't think she's here, but I think she's probably watching at, a, at an event last week. And she said she went home and listed, and I believe she said healing. If I'm wrong, forgive me. But I think she said she listed seven scriptures on healing. And so she took one every single day, and every morning she would write that scripture that she had chosen by hand. And she said she felt it start strengthening her. I loved that. She said, I thought to myself, I can do that. I love it. She took it. She put it into action. And then Sister Shields came up after church, after, after last week. And she was telling me she suffered a stroke a few years ago and had to relearn everything, how to walk, uh, how to write, how to do all that. And she said that that's what she would do. She would take her phone put the Bible on audio on her phone and listen and handwrite. And that is the way she learned to reform letters and rewrite, which to me is a miracle because if, if you've ever seen her handwriting now, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. You would never know. So healing came through the writing. I loved it. I loved that story. I love to get reports like that because it lets you know all of these practical things that we're saying have power in them. Okay. All right. So that was a quick review of last week. Tonight, we're going to move from that intensely personal aspect of knowing the word into the work part of understanding the word. The workman area is when we begin to apply it to our lives and watch it change and transform us as we begin to dive deeper into its pages and activate its power. Now, this is a really big concept that I want you all to clue into, okay? One problem that people have with becoming an effective workman is many times people try to become a workman before they develop that relationship. How many times have either you done it or you've watched somebody do it? That's backward. They'll say, you know what? If I can just learn how to use the tools, if I can learn how to study the Bible, then I know that it's just going to come alive for me and then I'll fall in love with it. No, it just doesn't happen that way. You fall in love with it. And that's what leads you to the tools. Because if you try to do it the other way around, the tools are actually going to become a hindrance to you. And what I mean by that is this. Plenty of scholars and academics can walk you through all kinds of mechanical exercises and knowledge of the word and not even believe in the deity of Christ or believe that the word is the voice of God. 
because they don't have a relationship with it. I am putting out a, um, an online course of eat this book, and it should be launching October 15th, I hope. It's a 40-day thing, so I'm recording 40 lessons that, that goes through. And in one of those, I actually interviewed a scholar who was studying in Israel. He has his doctorate in biblical Hebrew. He's getting it in biblical Greek, and he studies ancient manuscripts. And we were talking about this very thing. And he said one of the leading voices in textual criticism right now in the academic world of theology, is at best an agnostic and definitely does not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So that's what happens. You get all these tools, you learn to dissect, you learn to cut, you learn to, to, to take it apart. And when you do, you lose the relationship with it. The relationship is the part that has to be kept alive. All the time in order for the tools to work for you and not against you. Does this make sense? And I just saw some dear friends that I can't call their name, but I'm glad they're here. Because they are in other countries working for God. And we will not, we will not say that over this pulpit, but, but we're very glad that they're here. So our study tonight is taken from 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as always, in anything I do, any scripture I study, any scripture you study, you pick out the key words, and there's more than just one here, but I am just going to take two for, for, for a reason of time tonight, the first one I'm going to take, you'll see both of them are in italics. The first one I'm going to take is the word workman. It comes from the Greek word ergates. It means a toiler, one who labors, as in agriculture or manual labor. And the example was that of digging ditches. A workman. That means it doesn't come easy. How many of you had a garden this year? Yeah, I see a few hands. It's great, but it's hard work, that garden. It's hard work. There comes a point in life you finally say some of the young ones are going to have to do it. I'm not going to get out here and do this anymore. It's hard work. If you're going to be a workman, if you're going to be a student of the word, don't expect that you're going to be able to roller skate by it every morning and it just fill your soul as you go on your merry way. No, no, no. You've got to stop. You're going to have to sacrifice something. You're going to have to buckle down. You're going to have to get your head in the game. The second word, or two words, is rightly dividing. And many times... You will find that it's phrases that are uh, interpreted, not just words, because languages are not the same. Orthotomeo, to cut straight ways, to proceed by straight paths, hold a straight course equivalent to do right. When we first begin our relationship with the word and the layers of understanding and depth and meaning begin opening to us, it seems like we can't get enough of it, right? 
And so we take every chance we can to get away with the word, get in a corner, open the word. We can't wait to get up in the morning. But just as it is with our humanity, even the best of the best things become commonplace. And before we even realize it, the beauty of the word is drowned out by louder and more insistent and more jangling voices. And one day we wake up and we realize we've lost that first glow of love and devotion we had for it. And then we say, how do we keep that from happening? And I believe the answer to those questions lies in exactly how we grow our marriage relationship. And the answer to all of that can be described in one word, and that is commitment. You don't grow a marriage actually by love. What keeps a love in the marriage? Commitment. Many times, those who've been married for several years will say, I love them more now than I ever knew I could love them when we first married. We've been married for 36 years. And I say that. I love him way more now than I ever dreamed I could have loved him when we first married. And this isn't because the goosebumps get more frequent or the heart palpitations get stronger. Well, they do, but that's because of COVID. That's not because of... But... But I love him more now than I did. The reason why is because the hard days came and the dark storms descended upon the house and a strong commitment to what we were both striving to become bound us even tighter together. I loved him even more after seven years of marriage when my father passed away and I lost what had been my anchor for my entire life. My father was gone. And I watched him step in to that, I am your anchor role. I'm solid. I'm not moving. I'm going to guide this house according to the word of God. You can trust me. Watch me. Watch my prayer life. Watch me fast. I am a tree you can hang your hat on. I'm not going anywhere. So through the years, it's grown and it's deepened. It's when days of sorrow pay a visit to your home and you find yourself holding each other just to keep from drowning and it's when life gets tough and the laundry piles up and the kids are sick and it seems there are way more bills at the end of the month than money and you realize that that person doesn't look nearly as great in the mornings as they used to and you wonder what it would be like just to walk away and not look back. There's a lot of mothers that have little ones right now. Don't think they don't think it. They would never admit it. They don't want you to know it, but they think it. And all of you mothers in here who are older mothers, do you remember? I remember. Not wanting to, really, but just the thought crossing my mind. Oh, my goodness, that the load is so heavy. And it's in those times. Commitment keeps you there. What keeps me there? I said I did. I would, so I will. That's what keeps you there. And that's when you discover that it takes work to keep a relationship cultivated and keep it growing and keep it alive and active and strong. And at that point, you either begin to seek advice or assistance or books or marriage retreats or something. And you understand that intentionality and commitment are going to be your greatest assets. Amen? Amen? And y'all are looking at me like, hmm, I'm talking reality. It does no good to get up here and talk about pie in the sky that doesn't come down to where we live. And where we all live, regardless of how much we love each other, is that some days it's commitment that keeps us there. And it's the same thing with the word. It is no different.
So in order to be a workman for life, in order to be able to keep the knife sharp, be able to cut straight cuts so thin that marrow can be separated from from bone for life, I have found a few tools. And so we're going to talk about a few of these tools. I asked Terry on the way to church tonight, I said, when is the, ready? Somebody. You might want to move. <laughs> you might want to move. Don't laugh at her. It's coming your way. Uh, okay, that's pretty good, now, wasn't it? That was great. Hey, getting better. Don't Terry, don't say a word. Don't you look? You need to go to the atrium and get a cup of something. <laughs> so. I asked him on the way to church tonight, have you ever heard this taught on in church? And he said he had not. And I never have either. So although you may think it's elementary and you may think, what in the world? We are not the five-year-old Sunday school class. Just think and see if you've ever heard it taught on in church. If you have, fine. If you haven't, well, here you go. So tool number one, we're going to talk about four of these tools. The first one is the concordance. Sometimes I think that it is just as important to know what tools not to have as what tools to have. I only recommend four tools, and one of those I don't even really recommend. And I'm going to tell you about that too. So it's really not that hard. Now, here is a concordance. I was born and raised in church, and I was never told what tools I really needed, so this may be a little dry. And if you know this, you just reach over and help somebody sitting beside you that may not know it. This is a concordance. Do you see how big this is? This is an alphabetical list of words and definitions, and it's just like a dictionary except it only contains words that are in the King James Bible. Here are all of the words that are in the King James Bible. Are you guys seeing this? Okay. So if you look up an English word in this concordance, how many of you have never heard of this in your life? Tell me there's at least one person. There's what? Praise the Lord. Thank you. You validated me tonight. Okay. So if you have never seen this, you can look up a word such as um, one, and you can find every line of, of every verse in which the word one is mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. Beside that word is a number. If it's in the Old Testament, it's going to have an H beside it for Hebrew because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. If it's in the New Testament, it's going to have a G beside it for Greek because the New Testament was written in Greek. So many Bibles have a small limited concordance in the back of them, like my Bible. But these are very, very limited and only contain the main words. This contains every single word. This is an invaluable tool in Bible study, and we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes, and I am actually going to demonstrate it. This 
when you, when you look up that word and it has that number beside it, what that number tells you to do is go to the back of this concordance to what is called a lexicon. So the second tool is a lexicon. And a lexicon is usually included with a big concordance like this. Okay? The lexicon is one of the most valuable tools available if you're using the word analysis form of Bible study. And that is probably my favorite form, word word analysis form. And so I use a lexicon all of the time. A reliable hard copy source is what's found in the back of the Strong's Concordance. Now, why is it called Strong's? I'm going to tell you so that you will know. It was developed by Dr. James Strong, who was an American biblical scholar and an educator, professor of biblical literature at Troy University in 1851 through 1861, 1858 through 61. He had a team of over 100 people that worked on this project, and they diligently listed every occurrence of every word in the King James Version and published it in 1890, and we're still using it today. So that's where Strong's Concordance came from. He used the King James Version. That's why you can only use a Strong's Concordance with the King James Version. It will not work with any other version because it's based off of the King James. Since 1890, no printed Bible study library has been considered complete without a Strong's listing. Strong's numbers, those numbers are the numbers that his team gave every single word in the original biblical text that they were, uh, they were researching and studying from. So, in order to do a word study, you would have to look up a keyword which tells you the number, go back here, look up the number, find the word, and that gives you the meaning of the word in the original language. So that's the process, all right? Everybody got that? We're going to move on to the third tool. The third tool has a question mark by it, and it is a commentary, and the question mark is on purpose. Commentaries are nothing more than the personal opinions of someone about what the Word of God says. Okay? I am going to just give you my personal opinion. That's all I know to do. I'm the one teaching. I'm not going to give you anybody else's. I have a love-hate relationship with commentaries. Mostly hate. On one hand, I have been known to capitulate and turn to a commentary when I'm wrestling with a passage when it's hard to understand. And there are those that are hard to understand. But I will confess to you that never one time has that been a satisfactory solution for me. I have always been left dissatisfied by the fact I'm asking an unknown person, one whom I have no idea if they were spirit-filled or being led by the Spirit when sharing their thoughts on the particular scripture at hand to even to explain to me the mysteries of the voice of God. A commentary is somebody's opinion about the scripture. Why do you turn to a commentary to ask what that scripture means? That's not relationship. If Terry were to tell me something and I were to look at you and say, what did he mean? And you would be like, uh, 
you're the one who has the relationship with him. You ought to know. You could, can't you ask him? <laughs> Do you see? I don't know Matthew Henry. Did Matthew Henry have the Holy Ghost? I don't know. He's the big famous one. I believe if we depend on intellect alone to interpret the breath of God, we're setting ourselves up for failure. There have been a handful of times in which the interpretation of a commentary has pointed me in the right direction of searching out the scriptures, but more often than not, it still leaves me questioning. So have I used them? Yes, I have used them a few times, but I do not like them. The only thing they've ever done for me is point me to another place in the Bible, which that has been a good thing. I like this by Henry Ward Beecher. It was a quote that said, coming to the Bible through commentaries is much like looking at a landscape through garret windows over which generations of unmolested spiders have spun their webs. And that is the truth. That is absolutely the truth. It's taking the very breath of God and it's overlaying it with paltry, finite, fallible words of men. Just putting a filter on it. Have you... Oh, my goodness. All these Instagram influencers these days. Dear me. I don't know if any of you look at that. But if they're trying to sell you something or trying to, to show you something, they put filters over themselves. And, and the filter makes them look like they've got a perfect complexion and not a hair out of place. And everything is in vivid color. And it's like, I want to say, take that filter off. I know you have bags under your eyes. <laughs> Putting a filter over, that's what a commentary does. It takes that beautiful word of God and it puts a filter over it so that you can't see the real deal and the real deal is much more beautiful than the filter. So why even bring it up if it's so problematic? And that's because there are times that they're useful if you're very discerning and very careful in your your approach to them. They do point you to another scripture sometimes. But don't take the word of the commentary. Just follow the road that it points you to with the scripture. I, I had an experience one time with this where I had a, 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 a minister that I totally respected. Um, and I asked him to explain a, a particular passage of scripture to me. And so I said, what does this mean? And he, he kind of thought a minute and he said, well, he said, throughout the ages, commentators have had a very big problem with this passage. And he said, really, I guess my answer would be it just doesn't seem to have a clear interpretation. And respect kept my mouth shut. And I didn't say anything. But I wanted to say, but what do you say? Have you prayed about this? Have you asked God to explain it to you? Have you asked God to interpret the scripture to you? I didn't say that. But the point is, is don't ever, ever, ever fall back on the excuse. Well, commentators throughout the centuries have had a horrible time with this passage and we don't know what it means. The Holy Ghost is the word. We have the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will reveal all things to us if we ask him, if we, if we sacrifice, if we dig, if we search. The Holy Ghost will reveal it to us. God is not going to hide anything from us that is ours to have. Okay, um, can you tell I'm a little passionate about that subject? So we'll go on. Maps. Let's go to maps. I wanted to show you this. I brought this. 
As a child, this was my first little Bible, my very, very first little Bible. It's fallen apart, and actually, it must have gotten in the lost and found at our church whenever I was very, very young because I I totally lost it. And uh, a young man in our church was killed when he was 16, and his mother was going through his things and found this, and my name was in the front, and she brought it to me. It was just, it was amazing. But this is my first little Bible, New Testament, falling apart. When I was about two, my family, my parents got me this, and I have scotch tape on it from some time because it's fallen apart. And I kept this one until I was about 10. And then I even remember opening this one on Christmas morning. It had my name on it. They had had my name engraved on the front of it, and it was my grown-up Bible. And the reason I was so excited about this Bible is because, and you can tell it's, it's got stains and, and all kind of stuff in it. I kept this one until I bought my own Bible when I was about, a Thompson Chain, when I was about 20. But the reason I love this one is because it had maps in the back, and that meant I was grown up. Because children's Bibles didn't have maps, but grown-up Bibles did. And so I always wanted to be grown. Little did I know. So I felt very, very, very grown-up because I got my Bible and it had maps. As I got older and I had the opportunity to travel to many places in Europe in the Middle and Far East, I've been increasingly thankful for my geographical knowledge, which studying Bible maps of certain time periods and certain people and places has afforded me. However, maps will only enhance our Bible study if we commit to digging and doing the hard work. And a geographical portion is usually not included in every lesson study or with every biblical chapter. You have to choose your maps and seek out that information for, your, for yourself. It's interesting to me tonight that I'm going to attempt to teach this next portion and give you this next example with the visitors who are here, who this is their area. (laughs) So just, if I say something wrong, pretend it didn't happen. All right. I'm going to give you an example of why maps are so interesting. And I wish that you could be on camera because I would have you come up here and actually do this part. Because I know that you have so much more to add than I have to add. I have never seen these places. I was supposed to go to these places uh, last year whenever everything shut down. And so everything, our trip got canceled and I did not get to go. But many of you probably don't even realize that the seven churches of Revelation are in western Turkey. Do you know that? How many of you did not know that? Yes, great. Okay, the seven churches of Revelation are in western Turkey. How does this change something? It changes a lot, and they're probably going to be able to tell me a whole lot more that I didn't know when I get done with this. But first of all, I'm going to just show you kind of how it changes things in your mind. First of all, you have to say, okay, where is that in relationship to me? Well, Terre Haute, Indiana is over here on the left with that red arrow, and Turkey is over here on the right with that red arrow. So that's where Turkey is. That is where the seven churches of Asia Revelation are because that was Asia Minor at the time. All right, you with me? Let's travel across the ocean. 
We're going to cross Spain. You'll see that, well, the next slide, we'll cross Spain. We'll cross the border between Spain and France. We'll go across Italy. Greece is there to the right of Italy. And then we will get to Turkey. So you're kind of seeing how far away it is. We're going to go to the next slide. It's going to tell you where Israel is in relationship to Turkey. So see where Israel is down here with the lower arrow. Turkey is up top. All right, you have Syria, Lebanon, Jordan is to the right of Israel there. Iraq, all of these places that you hear in the news. So are you seeing what we have? Okay. Then we're going to go to the next slide, and it's going to zoom us in even more. And it's going to show us the western part of Turkey where the churches were, and then it's going to show that in relationship to where Israel is today. All right, we're going to zoom in a little more. And here, I hope you're able to see this. You're going to be able to see that these orange dots are, the, are actually the seven churches. If you will notice, the northernmost town, where you have that northernmost arrow up there, represents Pergamos. This southernmost arrow represents Laodicea. That is a distance of about 150 miles between those two towns. And you will see that the other five towns and the other five churches are within that. You will see that all of this roughly forms an oval. This was an old Roman mail route. And so these churches were established in the main cities along this old Roman mail route. This next slide shows the um, the arrow pointing to what was ancient Thyatira. I can't say the name of it now. Achazar, I believe, probably somewhere like that. Uh, that is a, still a city today. And I have learned that the ruins of Thyatira, the church that tolerated the false teachings of Jezebel, lie within this modern city. And in this modern city today, from what I understand, there are no Christian churches and no known believers. The next slide takes us to Sardis, which is the third city. It's in the middle there. It was a town 50 miles east of Smyrna. So you see Smyrna there on the coast, which is the modern-day Izmir, which is a thriving city today. So paganism flourished here in Sardis. The Christian community was small and weak, and a lot of them returned to their original religions. And at the time of John's vision in Revelation, Sardis was one of the wealthiest Roman cities, despite having been rebuilt multiple times after a lot of earthquakes. But today, the modern town of Sart, S-A-R-T, is only a mile from the ruins, and it has only just over 5,000 inhabitants, whereas they say Sardis probably had around 250,000. A nearby village carries on with rural life, but it's very small, and there are no known Christians in Sardis today. The next town right here, uh, Philadelphia, known as Alessahart here, I don't know. You can ask our visitors whenever we're done talking. It was a city, Philadelphia, the ancient name was a city 30 miles southeast of Sardis. Little remains of it. And uh, 
As far as we can tell, there are no known believers in Philadelphia today, although it was a city of brotherly love. This is where Christianity was flourishing. This is where God's attention was. And look at it now. Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, it's the next slide. It's located there on the coast. Anytime I hear anything about Izmir in the news, my mind automatically goes to Smyrna, and it goes to the fact that Smyrna was the persecuted church. It's the only church that a judgment was not pronounced upon. It was pastored by Polycarp, who was burned alive at the stake. Polycarp was a student of John. So Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, and it came there first before it went to Ephesus. And Ephesus is down there. That is the church that John brought in. The largest and wealthiest cities in the Mediterranean. The temple of the Greek goddess Artemis was located there. The little arrow there shows you where Patmos was, the Isle of Patmos. It was about 70 miles to the west of um, Ephesus. And so John, the pastor of Ephesus, the bishop of Ephesus, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos so close, but yet so far. But he did eventually go back to uh, his church in Ephesus. The amphitheater in Ephesus, which could hold up to 25,000 people, was the venue of the angry riot against Christians in Acts 19. And to me, that's very, very interesting that that's been the venue for several modern-day rallies and concerts. Some of the artists who have performed there have been Sting, Elton John, and Diana Ross. And I just want to, to say, really? Seriously? You're going to do that? You're going to sing where the blood of Christians bled and dripped into the ground who, per, who were persecuted to spread the gospel, who, who, who the country that you're a part of was built on? Seriously? get a little aggravated about that. Over time, Ephesus physically shifted to what is now the small town of Selchuk, only a five-minute drive from those ruins. But in Ephesus, where John established the church, they, are, they feel that there is still a small congregation of believers there. It's in uncovering facts such as these and connecting them to modern events as we read the ancient words of Scripture that illustrates the process of how to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. If you have the privilege of meeting our visitors after tonight, then you may even know how to help them pray for this area because you have understood, oh my goodness, Revelation talks about these places. And now this is what's there now. So this is what I have to pray against. We have to pray what the book of Revelation told us were the issues, because the ground, the land has absorbed all of these things. And we have a blueprint of how to pray for this area. Does this make sense? This is very valuable information to us as a student of the word. As we realize the geographical location of Old Testament events and connect them with New Testament events and connect them with modern day events, the living word of God takes shape inside us and further pulls back layers of understanding and meaning and purpose in our lives. And so you say, well, yeah, that's great, but this takes a lot of work. Well, I have just a few minutes and I'm going to take all of the work out of it for you. 
Are you ready? You up for that? I told you last week about Blue Letter Bible. If you have not used it, I'm going to give you a really quick little tutorial on it. When you go into your computer or if you download the app and you type in blueletterbible.org, it's a free resource. This is what comes up. This is the homepage. Okay? I did this. And as an example, I wanted to search for the word workman. I don't want to carry this massive concordance and lexicon with me everywhere I go. So if I have my phone, I can have advantage of every single thing that is in this book. So I put in the word workman. When I do that, this is what comes up. A bunch of scriptures, just a bunch of random scriptures will come up. We have Luke 10 and 2, 10 and 7, 13, 27, Acts 19, a whole bunch of, okay, and they all contain the word workman. I'm looking for the scripture that contains workman needeth not to be ashamed. So I'm going to keep on going and I keep on scrolling down until I find it. And I find that it's in 2 Timothy 2, 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So I click on that scripture reference. And when I do, this is what happens. Second, the whole chapter comes up. There is the verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. You can't see it because it's too small, but that top arrow is pointing to a box that says Strong's. If you click on that box, this is what happens. All of the strong numbers appear beside the words, isn't it? wonderful? Isn't it a miracle? Just like the Lord? See, I told you it might go crazy somewhere else. I don't know. I don't. So you click on the, the, the G4570. No, 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 no. The G2040 beside Workman. And this is what happens. When you click on that, then you do it again what you have to do. This comes up. See? Right there on your phone. All right. So when that comes up, then you realize that the word is ergates. And you say, how do I know that? Because there's a little sound icon right there. You can click on that and it'll say it for you. Takes all the guests. This book is not going to talk to you right here, but that will talk to you. It's a miracle and it's free. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, go to the next slide. All right, you're going to scroll down and then you're going to see the outline of biblical usage. That's where a lot of people get messed up. They say that's the definition. No, it isn't. It's the outline of biblical usage. Go down to the Strong's definitions. You'll see it. It's right there at the top. And it says a toiler, figuratively, a teacher. That means it was tying that verse back to teaching. Okay, you see? Is this beautiful? Has anybody gotten a revelation yet? All right. Now, if you go back to the verse, you're going to click on tools right there. And whenever you do, you're going to see all of these colored categories come up. Those are in a lint. No, go back one more. Go back again. Yeah, interlinear. You can choose Bible translations, cross-references, commentaries, uh, dictionaries, and then miscellaneous. I clicked on miscellaneous, and that's where we have the next slide. I found my maps. I found a bunch of music that's terrible music. I don't know who chooses it for them, but they need me. 
It's bad. Don't, you know, don't worry with that. But the maps, the maps are good. You need to do the maps. Okay. Are you seeing what I'm saying? You can be a scholar. You can be a Holy Ghost filled, brilliant person and people will go, oh, I need you in my life. That's what they'll say. It's beautiful. Okay. I have about seven, eight minutes to give you my three most favorite forms of Bible study. So I've given you all these tools, right? You with me? Okay, you've got them here. All right, so I've given you all these tools. You know how to go to it. Now, what do you do with it? Okay, my three favorite forms of study are word analysis. This is at the bottom of your page. Topical analysis and character analysis. To me, if you know how to do a word analysis... And if you know how to do a topical analysis and a character analysis, then that's going to keep you busy for life. That's just, it is. Now, if you want to do more, though, I'll show you where I got the forms. And that is on the next slide. It is a book that I found several years ago that I really love. It's Rick Warren's Bible Study Methods. And it's got 12 different forms in there, like the three that I gave you in your handout, and it explains them in detail. It's really, really good. It's available from Amazon, but that's where I got these things. I did not come up with them myself, although I will tell you how I make them work for me. Okay, so I'm going to go very, very quickly through the word study method, so if you'll open your handout, you can make copies of this, or you can order this book and make copies. But I want to show you how you make this handout work for you, these forms. On the word study method, the first thing is to choose a word to study. So if you want to do this this week and practice this, my suggestion to you would be to choose the word contend from the third verse of the book of Jude. Contend, earnestly contend for the faith. Choose that word, contend. So in the top thing there, you would write down English word, contend. That's the word you're going to study. Now, Rick Warren says to find the English definition. I don't agree. If you want to do that, fine. I don't agree. I just want to know the biblical definition. I don't want to get confused with the English definition. Step three, he says, compare translations. I don't agree with that either. That goes back to what we were talking about, about commentaries, getting other people's opinions before you seek God and get revelation. So I don't even agree. Now, other people have suggested that. I'm not against that. That's fine. It's not a sin to compare commentaries. I'm just telling you what I do and what I do not do. So I don't do two and three. And then I go to four, write down the original definition of the word. Here's where I pick back up with it. Go to your concordance and your lexicon in Blue Letter Bible. And then you'll write down the biblical definition of the word. It's just as easy as that. Then, this is another good step. Check, step five, check the word's occurrences in the Bible. Find where it else it appears. It really opens up a whole lot when you find where else that word appears. Where does it appear? In what books does it appear? How many times does it appear throughout the word? When a word is only used one time, that you need to sit up and take note of that. Okay? That usually will have a meaning. In what book does it occur most? These are kind of questions that you ask yourself. All right? You move to step six. 
find the root meaning and the origin of the word. Let me tell you something a little bit about a biblical Hebrew word. A biblical Hebrew word does not just have one meaning. It has a base, a three-letter base. And the Hebrew Bible actually only contains about 8,600 different words repeated over and over, and they are built on about 2,000 roots. That's all. So one biblical Hebrew scholar said this. This is the best way to explain it. One biblical Hebrew word has 50 translations. They tell a story. You've just never heard it yet. So a a Hebrew word is a concept, not just one definitive word. And you have to look that up. And the more that you use the concordance and the more that you use your lexicon and read the meanings of all this, the more you will understand that. Okay? All right. So step seven, discover the word's usage in the Bible. Find out how the word was used during the time that the Bible was written, how it's used in the Bible, how it's used in the context of what you're reading, not just that one verse, but the whole passage. Then step eight, write out an application. And you, I want you to write on your paper, do not write interpretation, write application. There's a difference. Sometimes we want to interpret what it says, but the point of the Bible is for us to apply what it says. So after you've learned these words and done these studies on these words, write out the application of it to you and not the interpretation of it. There's a difference. Write that down and and play with it a little bit. Is all of this easy? No, it is not. That's why it's called workman. I am running out of time. So I am going to let you, I am going to let you look at the topical, topical analysis, which that would be if you wanted to choose a topic like faith, or if you wanted to choose a topic like new birth, or if you wanted to choose a topic of love, whatever, then you would follow the instructions in those forms and learn the topic. The character analysis method, like if you wanted to take the character of Abraham. You would find, you. It, this could take you weeks or months. You would go through and you would study every reference that referred to Abraham and what did it say about him? What qualities did it mention that he had? What qualities are you discerning that he, and, and, and then you will paint your own picture of the character that you are studying. Those are the three most effective tools, in my opinion, that will keep you busy for life and keep you growing for life. As we close, I just, I just want to read this to you because many times as apostolics, we get the revelation of the mighty God in Christ and we get the revelation of the doctrine of salvation. And we are so in love with that and, and, and it's so incredible that we begin unconsciously, I believe sometimes, reading the Bible Fitting everything into all that and fitting it into what our ideas are. Throughout your life, you need to try to fight against that. This is a quote by Eugene Peterson, who was not apostolic. So I don't endorse him. But I do follow this train of thought. This is a text talking about the Bible that reveals the sovereign God 
in being and in action. This text does not flatter us. It does not seek to please us. We enter this text to meet God as he reveals himself. Not to look for truth or history or morals that we can use for ourselves. We do not read the Bible in order to find out how to get God into our lives and get him to participate in our lives. That's getting it backward. As we cultivate a participatory mindset in relation to our Bibles, we need a complete renovation of our imaginations. We are accustomed to thinking of the biblical world as smaller than our world. Telltale phrases give us away. We talk of making the Bible relevant to the world as if the world is the fundamental reality and the Bible is something that's going to help it or fix it. We talk of fitting the Bible into our lives or making room in our day for the Bible as if the Bible is something that we can add on to or squeeze into our already full lives. Biblical does not mean cobbling texts together to prove or substantiate some dogma or practice that we have landed upon. Rather, biblical means an opening up into what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, but what God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What we must never be encouraged to do is to force scripture to fit our experience. Can I say it again? What we must never be encouraged to do is to force scripture to fit our experience. Our experience is too small. That would be like trying to put the ocean into a thimble. What we want is to fit into the world revealed by Scripture, to swim in that vast ocean. So that's why I say, don't get the cart before the horse. Develop a relationship with the Word of God. And then let the tools propel you into that relationship. Don't try to use the tools to carve out a relationship. It won't work. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you again, God, for these people who have gathered together. Give us revelation this week. God, I pray that as these people think on the things that they've heard and as they open the word of God and as they use these papers and use the, the, the programs and all the new things that we not get bogged down with the tools. But God, give us revelation that it's way more than that. And these are the things that can help us a little bit, dig a little deeper, but it is only by your power. It is only by your spirit that we will be able to see the revelation and to be able to understand this vast ocean that you have for us of knowledge and of experience and of power. Let us come back into this place on Sunday stronger, full of more power, full of more love, full of more wisdom, but knowing that you were the giver of all. Thank you, Jesus, for these people. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, thank you. And don't miss next week. Strengthen. Strengthen is next week. Don't miss next week.